Would you please turn with me to the book of Exodus uh, and chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Uh, those of you who are familiar with Exodus know, even before you turn there, that that is the Ten Commandments. Uh, and about a year ago, Trinity Church Seattle, the church where I serve, we did a, a preaching series through the Ten Commandments, and it was um, incredibly life-giving and, 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 and beautiful and clear and good to think about God's law and what it means for us. And I had the privilege of teaching from the very last one, uh, the 10th commandment. So we're going to be spending our time thinking about the 10th commandment, which is Exodus 20, verse 17. But just for context, I'm going to read through from verses 1 to 17, uh, the whole of the 10 commandments, so we, we get a flavor for what's going on. Um, and and uh, just to catch you up on the context, uh, the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and God raised up uh, a savior, a prophet, Moses, who, uh, through, uh, who, who God used through Moses to save his people, to bring them miraculously out of slavery. And now they are uh, a free people in the wilderness. They've come to the mountain of God and he is giving them his law. And this is what God says. Listen carefully, beginning at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. This is God's holy word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father's on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do or you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, as we spend time in your word now, would you bless us? Uh, Grant to us understanding, grant to us life according to your word, according to your holy and perfect law. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Maybe you remember the famous atheist uh, who died a few years ago, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, He was not a fan of the Ten Commandments. He wrote in a Vanity Fair uh, article about the Ten Commandments uh, and basically just, you know, trying to tear them to shreds. And he said this about the 10th commandment. 
Um, He said that it is continual celestial wiretapping of private thoughts, sinister and despotic in that it cannot be obeyed and thus makes sinners even of quite thoughtful people. You see, apparently, it's reasonable to make rules for behavior and maybe even speech in the right context, but laws for our private desires, to Hitchens at least, is a ridiculous overstep. So it, it, bring, it brings up the question, do we really need someone to tell us what we can and cannot want? Well, I think the answer is yes. I think we all know that it's yes. I think it's obvious that it's yes. Think of it this way. Uh, Parents, you know instinctively that you are ethically obligated to be a despotic dictator when it comes to the desires of your children. Okay, if if your three-year-old, this is a crazy example, but it proves the point. If your three-year-old wakes you up at midnight and says that they want to walk to the mall parking lot and hang out there for the rest of the night in their pajamas, you don't just say, okay, honey, have a good time. That's not good parenting. It's not good parenting in that case to give your child what they want. That would actually be neglect, also known as child abuse. It's actually criminal sometimes to give your kid what they want. Because desire leads to choices that always have consequences. And those consequences, when the choice and and, and the action flowing from the desire is sinful or unwise or immature, often brings death to others, or to self. That means that discipling desire is one of the most important things that you can do, which is why God does that for us here. You see, the message of the Tenth Commandment, I think, is that God wants you to want more. Specifically, he wants you to want him. He doesn't just want you to want things, he wants you to want him. I want to look at that under four uh, points today, four categories Really answering four questions. Firstly, why we want what we want. Secondly, why God cares about what we want. Thirdly, why God sometimes gives you what you want. And fourth, why God sometimes doesn't give you what you want. All right, so we're going to go through those one by one. First of all, why we want what we want. The the foundations for uh, this command and other things that... Uh, about our desires is the Bible's deeply robust and sophisticated view of humanity, of who we are, of what we are. And so in, in Christopher Hitchens' language, the way that this command makes sinners out of reasonable people is actually a hint at how perceptive the Bible actually is about you and me. So let's think for a minute about the anatomy of our desires, according to the Bible. So the Hebrew word for covet here is, uh, is chamad. Uh, it's translated to covet. It uh, more broadly means to strongly want something or to, to see something, recognize the beauty and the richness of something and then to desire it because it's so beautiful. It's something that will give you pleasure and, and, and goodness and fullness. And this kind of desire drives our entire being, actually. A desire is a motive-managing, a will-bending force in your life. Do you realize that about yourself? It's basic to who we are. And it's basic to the world that God made and then put us in. The first use of this word in the Old Testament 
Uh, actually, it, it comes in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, where, where it's describing the creation that God made. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant, that is chamad to the sight, and good for food. We could say that God made a bunch of stuff in the world that is worthy of being desired. God put us in a world full of good things and gave us the capacity to want them and then said, Bon appétit. Enjoy this world that I have made. You know, your desires are kind of like your circulatory system. Uh, You have desires that seem to come up on a sort of fleeting basis. They're not very deep. They're just sort of desires to to fill some need in the moment. Uh, Like you want a cheeseburger or a hug or something. And that's, that's, maybe that's like the smaller blood vessels closer to your surface. But, but the reality is that those desires are connected with larger vessels that are a bit deeper under your skin, and all of those vessels are, are in a weaving system that connects to your heart. You see, we, we desire food in one sense because we get physically hungry, and that makes total sense, but that's not all, because the physiological phenomenon of hunger is inseparable from the system of desires that drive us to want certain kinds of food for different and often deeper reasons. Hence, the the category of comfort food. What is your comfort food? You know, for me, it's uh, a a, a piece of bread or toast lathered in peanut butter and jam. That's been comfort food since I was a kid. And that desire, it's not just for hunger satiation, though that's true. It's also for emotional satisfaction that comes from getting the food that I want and being in control of my environment, all those other things. So especially after a stressful day or if I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, I love to make a peanut butter and, and, and jam piece of toast, and it's awesome. And, and as I enjoy my peanut butter and jam, it's far more complex than just having my physical body taken care of with nutrients coming from the food. It's also a feast of desire. So the reality is that everything that you do and that you say that you think and that you want and believe are fed by the arteries of your desire. The first thing that you do when you get up in the morning, the things that you do seemingly without thinking are fed by this system of desires. And that way we're all, all of the time, being mastered by what we want most. And so here's the point. When it comes to this commandment and your desires in general... You cannot fix sinful desires by trying really hard not to want them, by simply denying them or trying to cut them off. It does you no good to try to turn yourself into a passionless, indifferent, purely rational creature or something like that. That's not how God made you. Realize that about yourself. That's not how God made you, and it's not going to work if that's what you try to do. Trying really hard to deny desire is like trying to deny intellectually that you have a brain it's kind of self-defeating you can't just turn that off so as we go on it's much more true to the fact to think about it like this obeying this command is not a matter of just not wanting stuff anymore it's actually a matter of resetting the heartbeat of your desires so that you want God first and that everything else maybe that you're even already desiring flows from that. On the flip side, we covet whenever we don't begin with God first in our desires. 
We covet when it's something else that we're desiring instead of him. And that leads to all other kinds of problems that we'll get into. That leads us to the second point, why God cares about what we want. That's, that's inherent in Christopher Hitchens' assessment, isn't it? Why should God care so much about what we want? Well, uh, the, the, the simple answer is because when we don't desire properly, it's sin. We're breaking the commandment of our Creator. And um, it, it goes deeply, actually, within the, the fabric of the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment and the First Commandment are actually very closely connected. The first commandment is that you, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. And it looks at our sin through the perspective of our heart's worship. The tenth commandment is very closely related to that, maybe the, the other side of the same coin, where it looks at our sin through the perspective of our heart's desire. Every time that we're desiring anything more than God, we're cheating ourselves and worshiping something that is not going to satisfy and, 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 and it's clear in the examples that are given. These are not bad things. Um, it, the, your, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, male servant, female servant, there's no indication that these are bad or, or flawed or sinful things. In fact, every person and animal and thing listed here are blessings that the children of Israel were promised by God to experience in the promised land. And ironically, it's when they got those blessings most of all, that led them into sin. The problem is not that there are things in the world that are too tempting, uh, too good, as it were, and that, that, that things are just too good and it makes us desire them wrongly. It's that we can't handle how good things are because we're too busy uh, trying to satiate our ultimate hungers with the goodness of the world rather than desiring God most of all. So what does this look like? What does it look like for us? Well, uh, I kind of came up with three categories related to other uh, biblical teaching about where our coveting comes from, where our sinful desire comes from. And the first one is from self-righteousness. What does it look like to covet from self-righteousness? I, I think self-righteously we can tell ourselves that I deserve that. I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm a good person, I am worthy enough to deserve that thing that I want. And, and, and we make a judgment call there, not based on Scripture, but by a standard that has benefited us, however we've constructed it in our minds. And so we say, I, I deserve that, I deserve that thing. Hey God, I deserve that. That's what we do. And we can even do... Uh, Maybe we could call it inverse coveting, where we show off or exploit the stuff that we already have, tempting others to covet, in order to feed a self-righteous narrative that I have this thing that's really cool because I deserved it, and I'm so great. Look at me. Obviously, I deserve this thing that I have and that you want. Do you do this with your words? Do you, uh, I'm sure to some degree you do, uh, love it when others listen to you. We do this in a religious context too. The prayers that you think are really well crafted, the spiritual uh, input that you have in conversations, you, as you're speaking, you're feeling for yourself, man, this is, this is really, really great what I'm saying right now. And you're hoping that everyone else is listening to you, coming to the same conclusion. And so how scary is it, the thought that someone might actually pipe up and say, actually, you're wrong. 
Or actually, I, I have something better to say. Or actually, I, I, I think it, it, it's, it's important for, for people to listen to me. You're afraid of getting ignored. You're afraid of other people not listening to you because you want the acclaim. You want the praise. You desire that attention from others. At least I do. We covet from self-righteousness. I think we can also covet from discontentment. This may be the, the most obvious way that uh, our hearts lead us into coveting. We look to money and possessions and human relationships to satisfy us, but they never have, and then we resent God for not giving us more. Uh, and, and so we can all live in these subjective bubbles of discontentment. To illustrate that, and more than once I've gotten into someone else's car um, that is objectively a, a better car than mine is, and uh, the, you know, this person, for whatever reason, uh, they feel like they need to apologize for their car somehow, apologize for how it's not as good as they would like it to be. You know, like they, they wanted the leather interior, but it was, you know, it was on back order. Or they, they wish they had the money to pay for the eight-cylinder version, but they had to settle for the six-cylinder. And, you know, sorry for that. And I always come away from that situation thinking, man, that person just needs to learn some contentment. Because if I had that car, I would be fully content with it. But the answer, of course, is no, I wouldn't. And how do I know for sure 100% fact that I would not be content with that car if I had it? It's because I'm not content with the car that I have right now. And when someone who has a, a, a more beat-up car than I do gets into my car, I'm apologizing for all the ways that it's dirty or that it's you know, not what I would have wanted it to be. You see, if our situations change, our bubble of, content, of discontentment just adjusts and we find our circle of life just not good enough. And it's constantly fluctuating like this. And, and, and unless we hear God's word, there's nothing to burst that bubble. We'll just keep going in this, in this mentality that we have. Because discontentment doesn't exist in us because of the things that we don't have. Discontentment exists in us because we're not satisfied in God. We're not satisfied in the right way or in the right things. Uh, thirdly, I, I think coveting also comes from envy. And this may be the, the most ugly one because it really gets into relationships and the way that we see other people. Um, one way to look at it is that we want bad things to happen to other people so that we can benefit from it. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But I think it's true if you think about it. Have you ever wanted a coworker that you're working with and maybe explicitly or implicitly competing with for a promotion or just from praise uh, from your boss? Have you wanted them to be criticized so that you would look good? Or at, at the very least, have you, have, have you done the same amount of work on something and have you wanted the, the, the brunt of the praise for something rather than them getting what they should be getting? Isn't it also an, an, an automatic mode that we have uh, in an argument? Not necessarily to desire the truth. That's kind of a secondary concern. We want to be right, though. That's what we want most to come out of the argument, is for us to be right and the other person wrong and shown to be false. It's not just that we want to win the argument. We want to make sure that the other person has lost in the process, to have the audacity to challenge us. Why? Because we love being right. We love, we desire looking right and smart. 
you know, just thinking about, you know, where, where your church is at, I, I imagine it's been a temptation recently to envy in a, the pastoral search recently. Um, you know, every candidate that comes through, especially the ones that you really like, is, is, is the structure of that desire like this. We want this man to be our pastor. But more than that, may God's will be done, even if that means this candidate goes to another church because he's a better fit there or they need him more or that's going to be more necessary for God's kingdom in that place. And maybe even if that means somehow that, that, that our church needs to suffer and go through more lean years in order for God's kingdom to be built up somewhere else, so be it. To God be the glory. Is that the automatic assumption? Or do you, have to, do you have to fight with every fiber of your being to believe that? Rather than to say this, probably what is most tempting, to desire that other churches lose out on getting their man so that you can get yours. And we could go on with examples. But when we see how strong and, and fallen and twisted our desires are, it can be easy to think, if only we could turn this thing off. If only we could turn off our desires. But of course, that's not true. That's not the, the way forward that the Bible presents to us. And we see that most fully in God himself, actually. And that's where I want to turn now. Look, uh, let me say it this way. God is full of desire. But he is never a covetous God. He is never sinfully desiring. God wants you, actually. He wants you. He always has. But he does so with a perfect kind of desire. A contented desire. A desire that, that, that we have never fully experienced in ourselves, but we experience when we receive it from him. He did not look at you with discontentment and say, I need that person to fill up something missing or lacking in me. That's impossible because he's God. Instead, he saw you as you are, sinful and setting your desires on what will not satisfy. And instead of building up with anger, he built up with pity. Listen to the words he uses when he calls those of us, all of us, struggling with desire. This is from Isaiah Uh, Chapter 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. These are all metaphors, by the way, as God calls us to himself. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's a gracious invitation. You know, in, in order to desire God in that way, we need our desires to be fixed. The first place to do that is to see how he has desired us perfectly and contentedly. But then we need our sin defeated. Because we want to grow in our ability to desire him. And so a couple chapters earlier in Isaiah, we're told of the coming Christ. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should, it's the same word used there actually, covet him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I wonder if you caught that. You and I probably would have been too busy coveting possessions, wealth, maybe as a good Israelite, political stability in Jesus' day to miss what Jesus was all about. But in a sense, in the grand scheme of things, that didn't even matter 
for his mission. Because regardless, Jesus is still able to fix our hearts because, as Isaiah goes on, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In our circulatory system of desire, it doesn't matter how much blood we've bled out on the idols that we have craved, Christ bled more for all of us, to save us from our coveting. And in this commandment then, it's the furthest thing from being sinister or despotic because we need it. We need it because we cannot obey it. Because we cannot obey it. And especially because of that, it confronts us with where we need it most. And then most of all, it confronts us with how Christ has loved us so much with his perfect desiring. So, this morning, let's be confronted in the things that you covet, in the things that you don't desire properly, in the, thing, in, the des- in the desires you have that are showing that God is not your ultimate desire. That's where God wants to change you most. And that's where he's actually up to something. Through his spirit, through his word, discipling you to want him. How does he do that? Well, there's a lot of ways that he does that, but I want to talk about two primary ways as we move towards the end here. The first one, uh, we'll spend a little bit of time, uh, well, just a couple minutes, why God gives us what we want. God does give us what we want sometimes. Uh, he gives you the job, the car, the family, the wealth, uh, the, the place and the safety, the security that you have asked him for. And here's why. Because he loves you. Yes, that's a given, but it's worth saying. But secondly, to equip you to obey and worship him and then to share the gifts he's given you with others. That, that's the big principle I, I want you to come away with. If you, in those areas of your life where you have been given gifts by God, gifts that seem to be overflowing, don't let that overflowing overflow in a, I, I got this because I'm so great kind of way. Let it overflow in a, God has been so good to me. Please have some of what he's given me. And Christ's life is the perfect example of this. He walked around not with great riches or treasure or even a, a, a house, to live in, but he walked around with the greatest blessing possible, himself. And for his entire ministry on earth, he gave himself away, sacrificing time, energy, comfort, and giving and giving and giving and giving himself to those who needed him until he gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. So when God gives you something, don't worship it and hoard it for yourself. Give it to others. Make, make your life in that way a living testimony that Christ is more precious to you even than the greatest thing that God has given you because Christ is the greatest thing that God has given us. So God gives us what we want, but secondly, God also doesn't give us what we want. Sometimes God doesn't give us what we want. The obvious question when that happens is why? 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 It's not because we've already been over this that we only want bad things. Oftentimes what's most confusing is when God doesn't give us a good thing that we've been asking for for a long time. It can even bring uh, some really harmful, dark side effects. 
because it's a looming, foreboding sense that things are going really wrong, that God is absent from our lives. It can get really dark. It it, it can interact with our emotional experience with anxiety and fear because we don't have something that we need. Sometimes it's it's not only that God doesn't give you what you Want. Sometimes he doesn't give you what, he, what you need. And, and we need to be aware of this darkness and, and, and be willing to think about what's happening in the midst of it. Because uh, w- one thing I, I don't want to communicate is that when I tell you not to covet, that you come away from that thinking uh, that I'm just another pastor trying to minimize your pain or your grief, because that's not what's happening here, and I I certainly don't want to be doing that, because that pain, that grief over an unmet desire, especially if it's a good one, is very real. So what is your unmet desire this morning? Uh, Have you been praying about a broken relationship with parents or children and things get worse, no matter how hard you try, no matter how long you wait, no matter how fervently you pray. Maybe there's a promotion that you think you should have gotten, and you actually did deserve it. You are the, the most worthy of, of advancing in your career, in your field, because of merit and hard work and expertise, but someone else got it. Maybe they didn't deserve it. Maybe they had a, a personal in with the boss. And that makes you feeling slighted, and what's, what's it worth anyways? I'm sure some of you have chronic physical pain. I'm sure maybe even more of you have emotional pain and emotional illness, mental illness. These are the kinds of things that we pray every day for that God takes away, but then he doesn't. Why? How long, O oh Lord? Maybe you're in this season now, or you remember being in a season where you've, you longed for marriage. You longed for that spouse who would be your companion, who would point you to Christ, who would be uh, the, the, the Christian companion throughout life. Everyone else seems to be finding theirs so easily, but it's taking you so long, and where is this person? Does he or she even exist? And as you walk on in loneliness, you just have a scarred, broken heart. And maybe you've prayed and prayed and prayed for children, but your, your womb and your table and your home just seems more and more empty as the weeks and months and years go by. And how long, O oh Lord, is the cry? It seems like there's no answer, or at least the only answer is no. And, and I've, I've gone through similar things in, in, in my life. But I don't know exactly what you're going through. I don't know what it's like to be you right now. No one else does. It's your experience, which is unique in and of itself. And that in and of itself can be isolating and crushing because there's no one else who understands. No one else who gets you in this pain that you have. But I want you to see that this command is not adding to that. There's actually some good news here for us. Commands are about actions, right? Practical steps. Uh, It's probably not going to be helpful for me. If you're really experiencing pain or anxiety 
because of unmet desires to tell you a new way to think. That's probably not going to be helpful. But maybe here's two things you can do if that's where you are this morning. The first is pray. Keep praying. Prayer feels like a desert, and this is counterintuitive, but it's also really life-giving. Keep praying. Doubling down on that unmet desire and praying more for it, praying again. Waking up tomorrow and praying again for it. It's a discipline that preaches to your own soul that even if you don't get what you want, it's still worth praying for. It's still worth going to God with it. Even if that prayer is, God, I don't know why I don't have this and how long is it going to take. That is, that's, that's, that's you preaching to your own soul, something that will bring you life. Ask him for what you want. If you take the teaching of Jesus on prayer, maybe the, the biggest thing that you take away from it is that you should never, ever, ever be ashamed and never stop asking God for good things. Be persistent. Don't stop. That is a born-again child of God instinct that you have by the Spirit. Don't snuff that out. But also, as you're praying, ask him to help you want more, not less. So don't be content only to desire children. Ask God to help you desire children so that you can share the gospel with the next generation. Don't be content only to want your physical pain to go away, but desire it to go away so that you can share more of yourself with others. When you pray for more of God, even when you have nothing, you're planting the seeds of an oasis in the desert. Uh, Secondly, uh, dive into Scripture. Make this season of emptiness a season where you are in the Scriptures more than you normally would be. Wear out the pages of Philippians and 2 Corinthians and the book of Job and Proverbs. Uh, Read about Abraham and Sarah and Hannah and Naomi and Ruth and Jeremiah. And what you'll find is that probably every single... I can't think of a protagonist in the Bible who did not share this experience in common. That they went through a profound and extended time of unmet desire and suffering where, where, where they themselves could have prayed those prayers from the Psalms. Lord, how long? Almost everyone goes through this. And you are at an advantage to enter into that story personally. And, and, and to really understand what they're going through. And then also to have what they learned in their life really hit home to you. To make their rhythm the, the, the heartbeat of your soul. You know, at the end of the day, what they all found is that God is their greatest treasure. And that you may find that too. Most of all, though, don't forget the most important protagonist in Scripture. Uh, Jesus himself. Because... He, more than anyone else, combined, dealt with unmet desire. Uh, He was the most empty, the most oppressed, the most lonely on his way to the cross. See your pain in the eyes of your Savior right before his betrayal and execution. Think about how he was wrestling and longing and pleading with God to take away his cup of suffering and, and unlike us, Jesus never sinned in his desires. They weren't mixed motives. They were fully, uh, fully holy and righteous desires. It was the thought of him carrying sin. Sin that he had never known, but sin that he was about to bear on himself. That shattered him. It was the thought of being separated from the loving presence of his Father that crushed him. 
It led him in the Garden of Gethsemane to anxiety and, and loneliness. Probably when, when, when we read in the Gospels of the Gethsemane accounts, he's experiencing panic attacks in the garden. And he's pleading with God. And the only answer he gets back is no. What does he do with that? Broken? Suffering? He gets up and obediently goes to the cross. You see, in short, friends, we are saved from sin and death and hell because when Jesus was suffering the most, he did not covet. He did not covet your lack of eternal suffering. He did not covet your peace with God. He did not even want harm to come to you so that he could be spared from his. Instead, he went to the cross compelled by a pure desire to faithfully obey his Father and see our salvation to the end. So that even when all of our desires may be taken away, your deepest one can still be all the more unshakable, the one to know him and serve him and love him. And out of love, he's calling you now in your unmet desire to carry a cross like his, to deny yourself, not to diminish your desire, not to destroy you, but in the end to fill it up to the full, just like his. That's our God. That's our Savior this morning. And even if your desires are not being met, you are actually in a great place to follow him. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, uh, the way that you work in our lives providentially is so mysterious sometimes. And we thank you, first of all, that you give us words in Scripture to use when we are at our wit's end, when we don't have anything, and we, when all we have is uh, how long, O oh Lord. We thank you that we can join with the saints from the past. We thank you that we can join even with Christ himself. And we thank you that as he joined with the saints from his past, he did so on his way to saving us and making us yours. So Lord God, would you please help us and disciple our desires that we would not desire anything wrongly, that we would not desire anything sinfully, but that you would reset the heartbeat of our desires so that we would long for you more than anything else and that we would want all kinds of good things so that we can share with others and glorify you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.